2: And welcome back to Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Moni Gotmoney Amin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Meredith Elizabeth Trubitt. And on tonight's show, we discuss GI Bleed with our guest Tanvi Deer. We will tell you a little bit about her here in a second, but first, Meredith, please remind the people what it is we do
1: on this show. Sure, Moni. We are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge.
2: Great. And we have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Tanvi Deer. She is an associate professor at the Division of Digestive Diseases at Emory University. She went to medical school at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. And upon completing her MDE, she left for Chicago to join the residency program at Northwestern McGaw Medical Center. She returned to the South to complete her GI fellowship at Emory, where she joined faculty upon finishing. During her training, Dr. Deer, pursued research in inflammatory bowel disease and continues to focus on much of her research in this area. She's particularly interested in ethnic differences as it relates to disease progression, treatment, and genetics. She's also trained in reading small bowel capsule endoscopy and has focused some of her research in this arena as well. And she's super pumped to talk to us tonight, guys, and you'll be able to tell in our conversation. Uh, she tells us a little bit tonight about the ins and outs of managing diagnosing upper and GI bleeds. And then some real fun pearls, erythromycin is actually a thing and CT and TAG red blood cell scans are actually frequently thought of in unstable patients, which I don't think I realized when we were before we had the conversation. So great episode for you tonight. So let's get to it.
1: But before we do, I just want to say that I hope this episode is cathartic and we really make GI bleeds a digestible topic for everyone listening.
2: Okay, you're, you're done talking.
1: All right, now we can get started.
2: A reminder that this and most episodes will be available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org.
1: And no trade names were used when possible and a balanced range of therapeutic options was included in the discussion. Okay, so I think we've had enough technical difficulties. We can go ahead and get started. Um, So we've got a great guest. Tomvi's here. She So thanks for coming on the show tonight. Um, I guess we can go ahead and just jump on into some rapid fire questions. So Tomvi, do you want to start by just giving us like your one liner that you use to describe yourself?
3: Sure. Um, So I'm an academic gastroenterologist, uh, associate professor in the division of gastroenterology. Um, I'm a wife to a transplant hepatologist and mother to two girls, uh, two that are human, one that's a German shepherd. Um, I enjoy planning birthday parties for my girls and putting together family-themed Halloween costumes. Um, During the pandemic, I took up tennis, and I play on a team called the mood swings.
2: (laughs) This sounds amazing. We may have to get the deets on this later. That is some insane planning. Um, I think, you know, someone that plans that much has probably learned to plan for any number of reasons. And I imagine some of that, if we take it back to academia, uh, probably comes from some mistakes. So would you mind describing maybe like one of your favorite failures, if you will? Sure. Um, So I guess it wouldn't really go in line
3: with um, necessarily the, uh, you know, the the planning for the Halloween costumes, but um, probably was, Dating back to high school it was my junior year in high school, um, and during that time, every year um, a group of students uh, would get selected um, to attend this academic governor school during the summer. Um, and I, when I went into it, I thought I was going to be a shoe in. I had worked so hard and had felt that I'd done so well academically that I was going to get selected. And so in order to get selected, um, we ended up having to go through an interview process um, uh, with a bunch of teachers. Um, And unfortunately, I didn't get selected. I was uh, one of the few students that um, ended up not getting selected. And of course, I was devastated and uh, very upset. And, um, you know, when I talked to some of the teachers about, you know, what the issue was, you know, they said you know you know academics are one thing but you know it's really important to also you know kind of think about extracurricular activities and such outside of academics and so kind of scratched my head and then um, the week after this happened, um, I happened to be walking in the hallways in our high school and I came across um, a flyer for a audition for the school play and so I ended up, auditioning for the school play, and I ended up getting a part. Um, It was a pretty, you know, pretty decent part, and I think that just opened up the avenues for me to continue with acting. And and the following year, um, the the theater teacher um, really kind of took me under her wing and um, really encouraged me in so many different ways, and so ended up um, getting a lead part in this play, and ended up um, winning first state. Uh, So it was the first time that our school school, ended up winning first um, in a theater competition of that nature, and I continued to do theater all the way through medical school, um, which was a lot of fun, but then, you know, residency hit and fellowship hit, and um, unfortunately, I didn't continue with acting um, after that, but certainly, I think it really helped me to develop um, as a person, and um, I I just, I really enjoyed it, and so I'm, I'm, you know, it was unfortunate that I didn't get into um, that governor's school, but I think it was great and that i was able to find something else that i really enjoyed
1: i think that's a nice story and throw back to like all the thing i think often when we ask the question we think back to like like you said med school or residency or training um but it's nice to think back to like those earlier times where you really probably did learn things that have been beneficial to you during training
2: i think i think it's time so, speaking of women that I enjoy, Zoe Deschanel is New Girl, and Meredith insisted that I watch it. And so, I'm sure everyone out there that's listening already knows what the brilliance that is New Girl. But what I discovered recently is a rewatch podcast called Welcome to the Show, Welcome to Our Show. It's with Zoe Deschanel, her best friend on the show, CC Hannah Simone, and Lamorne Morris, who plays Winston. And it's really just fun. They. Talk through the episodes and share memories, and you find out all sorts of hilarious things, like how the producers insisted, tried to insist that uh, Zoe Deschanel and Hannah Simone had different haircuts because they're both women with brown hair, um, but they look very different. So, anyway, really funny, like behind behind the scenes stuff. Uh, and Meredith, since you clearly gave me this pick of the week in a way, I think you get to like close with your pick of the week.
1: Okay. I had one all planned out, but then I'm going to change it last minute. Ugh. It's so good, though.
2: Hate when you do this. To so me.
1: I, I Peloton um, for the listeners out there, and I did this incredible 2000s pop ride this morning. <laughs> and it was so good. It was like uh, 45 minutes. First 15 minutes was like true pop, like some Kelly Clarkson for you, Moni, Destiny's Child. It was really good then went into like some Eminem and Nelly, throwback Nelly, am I right? Yes. And then ended with like um The Killers and um uh Paramore. And so it was just like it was a really good kind of mix of everything and it just brought me infinite joy this morning. That's glorious. It is.
0: Folks, there's a lot of things that I do to try to stay healthy and just be well overall but I have to admit I hate doing most of them. I don't really like eating well. I don't enjoy exercise. But one thing I do enjoy that also maintains my wellness is getting a good night's sleep. And ever since I got my Birch mattress a couple years ago, that has not been a problem for me. Um, Every night, it's just a matter of seconds before I drift off into the arms of Morpheus and take part in one of my favorite activities in the world, namely sleeping. Birch mattresses, ...are stylish, they are comfortable, and they are environmentally conscious. The non-toxic mattresses are made right here in America, and they are crafted with natural and organic materials that have been sustainably sourced. Plus, Birch knows there is no better way to test out a new mattress than by sleeping on it in your own home, which is why they offer a 100-night risk-free trial. Try out your new Birch mattress, see how your body adjusts, and if you decide it's not right for you, you are welcome to return it for a full refund. Birch mattresses are shipped directly from their manufacturing facility to your door for free... The mattress comes rolled up in a box, and it's super easy to set up. You just take it out of the packaging and kind of watch it explode. And right now, Birch is giving $400 off all mattresses and two free eco-rest pillows at birchliving.com slash curb. That's $400 off and two free eco-rest pillows at birchliving.com slash curb. Sleep better with Birch.
4: Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Audience, you know, at the Curbsiders... We're fans of BetterHelp because we're fans of therapy. We're fans of taking care of yourself. And in medicine, let's be honest, too few of us have done that for ourselves. But now it's easier than ever because BetterHelp is online therapy. All you have to do is go online and sign yourself up, choose a therapist, and within 48 hours, you'll be matched and you can get started. It's easy and you don't have to wait in a therapist's office. So it has really removed a lot of the barriers. So if you've been thinking of getting yourself into therapy, you have no more excuses. And now is a great time. BetterHelp is a great option because it's convenient, accessible, affordable. And as I said, it's entirely online. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com curb today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash curb.
1: So I think um, we've gone off the rails enough so far. So, Moni, do you want to take us into our first case at Cashlack?
2: Absolutely. However, let it be known that there's two episodes in a row that it was not me that mentioned Kelly Clarkson. It was the other people. Thank you. Okay. Case number one from Cashlack. Mr. Lopez, he's 56. He's got a history of hypertension, alcohol use remotely, and and he represents the emergency department with a two-day history of black stool. He notes some epigastric pain that began around the same time as the black stools. He's never had these symptoms before. He doesn't drink coffee. He does, however, note that he's been taking ibuprofen three times a day for the past 14 days because he strained his lower back while playing tennis with his son. And on arrival to the emergency department, his vitals are notable for being hemodynamically stable, Uh, exam notable for mild epigastric tenderness to palpation, and his labs are notable for a hemoglobin of 12 from a baseline of 15, BUN's 40, and a creatinine of 2 also around his baseline. So, I think Dunby were kind of alluding to a pretty clear cut upper GI bleed. Is there any information at this point that you want more from the history and physical that might help you solid- solidify this?
3: Yeah, I mean yeah, I think you're right. You know, based on the information that you provided in this case, um, it's pretty clear um, that, you know, this patient likely has a upper GI bleed. Um, he's presenting with black stools, uh, which we would say he's probably having Um He's got a huge risk factor for development of upper GI bleed. Specifically, he's been taking NSAIDs. Um, the epigastric pain um, could be suggestive of having peptic ulcer disease from taking the NSAIDs. Um, the drop in the H and H of 3 grams is fairly significant, um, be consistent with blood loss in the context of this clinical presentation. Um, he also has an elevated BUN as well. Um, and if we calculate the BUN to creatinine ratio, it's about 33 uh, to 1. Um, so anytime I see a BUN to creatinine ratio greater than 30 to 1 um, in the setting of melan, I think about um, patient having an upper GI bleed. Um, so some additional information. Um, that would be helpful um, would be, you know, has he been having any hematemesis, um, be it frank blood or coffee ground emesis? Um, you know, although the history seems to be suggestive of a peptic ulcer disease, um, given that he's been taking ibuprofen, um, I'd also want to keep in mind potentially other etiologies um, that could lead to melana um, that could affect the immediate management for this particular patient. Um, so I'd want to assess specifically um, for risk factors factors. factors for cirrhosis, cirrhosis, which could lead to variceal bleed, esophageal varices, or gastric varices. Um, So, I'd want to know about alcohol use, um, as well as other risk factors for um, cirrhosis. Um, You know, interestingly, you know, In terms of lab values, um, you know, in patients that we may not suspect um, as having cirrhosis just based on the history, sometimes lab values can be helpful to identify somebody who may um, potentially have underlying portal hypertension, um, specifically if they have um, a low platelet count. That can be one of the earliest signs of portal hypertension. Um, I'd also be looking at their coagulation parameters, um, their liver tests, as well as um, their white count, so white count may be low in somebody Um, who has portal hypertension. Um, You know, you mentioned that this patient has been taking NSAIDs, um, but I'd also want to ask about any additional over-the-counter medications that he may be taking, Um, you know, specifically in the South. um, There are a couple of over-the-counter powder pain relievers um, that are sold uh, that can um, carry up to a milligrams of aspirin uh, per dose, um, and so I'd want to specifically ask about those medications as well as the use of other NSAID or aspirin products. Um, I'd want to ask about um, nausea, vomiting, reflux symptoms. Um, you know, if they were having that, I'd be thinking potentially about uh, reflux esophagitis um, that can also present with an upper GI bleed. Um, typically, they present probably more with coffee ground hematemesis than melena, but certainly a. Differential um, in somebody with an upper GI bleed. Um, I'd also want to be asking about signs and symptoms um, that I would worry about the patient could potentially have a gastric or esophageal malignancy. Um, so, specifically, I'd want to ask about weight loss, um, appetite loss, dysphagia. Um, although less likely, um, I'd also be asking uh, this patient uh, whether they had been taking any substances that could uh, potentially cause their stool to look dark, um, like iron or pepto or licorice. Um, in terms of their past medical history, um, I'd be asking about um, renal disease um, or aortic stenosis, which um, both are with AVMs, uh, which can also present with upper GI bleed, um, I'd also be asking about uh, previous abdominal surgeries, um, specifically upper GI tract surgeries such as a gastric bypass. Um, sometimes patients can develop anastomotic ulcers um, with those type of surgeries, as well as any type of bowel surgery. So, um, and those could potentially um, lead to melena or an upper GI bleed. Um, I'd also ask about a history of AAA or any history of AAA repair, um, which can predisposed to aorta enteric fistulas and most commonly we tend to see them in the duodenum. Um, They classically present with what we term as a Harrell bleed um, which seemingly is a self-limited bleed followed by a massive hemorrhage Um, but certainly this can be quite uh, life-threatening and something I would not want to miss.
2: No, I think that really covers a good like breadth of stuff all the way from cirrhosis all the way through like surgical things which I think sometimes as internists we do a poor job of thinking outside of sort of our medicine box and sometimes even if we're hearing about a GI bleed we don't and we hear and said we kind of shut off our mind and don't keep it broad enough so i think that was really helpful to sort of go through that now all of that's fine and good all the time whenever i hear a resident call for back in admission about a GI bleed the question about the guaiac stool testing comes up so how relevant are they how useful are they do i need to stop hounding my residents about getting them is the question yeah
3: no, I think that's a great question. Um, you know, I think if you really want to rile up a GI specialist covering inpatient service, you just mentioned the words that the stool guaiac was positive. Um, you know, to be honest, the only real place to consider guaiac stool testing, um, I would say, is in the outpatient setting when you're discussing colon cancer screening and somebody who is at average risk for colon cancer. Um, I don't really see a huge utility for using guaiac testing on the inpatient setting. Um, You know, unfortunately, this test can be falsely positive. Um, You know, if a patient has something like epistaxis or hemoptysis or maybe some type of inflammation in the GI tract, um, the guia can be falsely positive and may not really indicate a significant GI bleed and may um, inadvertently lead to additional testing that the patient may not need and uh, potentially put the patient at risk from procedures that are um, somewhat invasive. Um, in addition, the test can also be falsely negative um, in patients who may have intermittent bleeding or those patients with slow bleeding. Um, so, you know, in, on one side it can be falsely positive, but on another side it can also be falsely negative. Um, and at the end of the day, especially in a case like this where the positive predictive value for an upper GI bleed based on its clinical presentation is very high, I really don't think, um, you know, guaiac dual testing on the inpatient setting really changes the clinical management in the vast majority of cases. So really, at the end of the day, the best way to diagnose an upper GI bleed is by getting a really good history, a good physical examination, and assessing
1: their serum lab values. Okay, that's super helpful. So keeping all of that in mind, it's to us, I think as hospitalists, it seems rare that patients would potentially get discharged home from the emergency room. But when we were reading, you know, there are these like risk stratification like tools that you could use in order to determine if a patient um, needs to stay um, in the hospital for further like management of this concern for bleed. Could you talk a little bit about those and kind of when they're useful and how much we really are, are or should be using them?
3: Yeah, there are um, a couple of scores um, to sort of risk stratify um, somebody at risk of poor outcomes um, who's presenting what signs and symptoms of an upper GI bleed. Um, the one that's most commonly cited is the Glasgow Blatchford score, um, which takes into account several variables, um, including vital signs um, like blood pressure, heart rate, uh, presence of melana, um, drop in H&H, elevated BUN, uh, concomitant comorbidities including liver disease as well as heart disease um, so you know based on that particular scoring system if a patient has a score of zero um, those patients are um, at low risk of having adverse outcomes and they could potentially be safe- safely discharged um, from the ED um, so you know how I would kind of interpret that and in, you know in a patient who may um, come in let's say with um nausea and vomiting due to gastroenteritis, and um, maybe a third or fourth episode of vomiting, they uh, vomit up some bright red blood, uh, but when they come into the ED, they're hemodynamically stable, their blood pressure rate are all normal. Their labs are all normal. They're not having any melana. I mean, it's pretty suggestive of a Mallory Wise tear, which often tends to be very self-limited and doesn't really um, lead to any significant further bleeding. Um, So in that particular patient, um, you know, their Glasgow Blatchford score would probably be zero and that patient could potentially be safely discharged from the ED. Um, I think it's also important to note that, um, you know, when you're discharging a patient from the ED with any type of suspected bleed, it's really important to make sure that they do have some type of follow-up with a gastroenterologist in a timely fashion. Um, And if they needed further care, that they would have access to a hospital if needed.
1: Okay. And... Just like, I guess, going back to that score, it seems like there's a lot of things in it. So it would be fairly difficult, I guess, then for someone to really score that low, right? Like, it's not going to be likely.
3: You're right. I mean, just with the presence of melana, um, that's a score of one. Um, And so those patients would probably (laughs) require
1: admission. Okay, Cool. So now we're going back to Mr. Lopez. He's like coming in. We've kind of established, you know, we're concerned about this upper GI bleed. Um, So thinking about kind of the first steps for management for him as a hospitalist, um, what are some of the things that uh, we should be thinking about?
3: In terms of the first step in management, um, the first thing would be to consider the ABCs, right? So we want to make sure that he is oxygenating well. Um, We want to make sure that his blood pressure and heart rate are okay. And um, based on the initial presentation, it looks like he was hemodynamically stable. Um, Regardless, I'd still want to make sure that he has adequate IV access. So we'd want to make sure he has two large bore. IVs um, or central line, um, want to make sure that he gets typed in screen. Um, we'd want to give him fluids if needed. Um, At the time of presentation in a patient who I suspect an upper GI bleed, we're typically going to recommend starting a PPI IV, um, either doing um, a bolus uh, with a drip or doing a bolus with intermittent dosing. And the reason that we do that is that studies have shown um, that by giving IV PPI, we can help to downgrade the severity of the ulcer. Uh, thereby decreasing the need for intervention as well as decreasing the length of stay. Although they don't necessarily decrease 30-day mortality rates or the need for surgery, there is some uh, degree of benefit that would warrant um, the patient being started on a PPI. Um, in addition, in patients who may have a non-ulcerated reason uh, for an upper GI tract bleed, such as an AVM um, or a lesion that we uh, term as a um, by increasing the pH above six we, 6, we can help to stabilize clot formation. So it can be beneficial in patients who may not have a peptic ulcer bleed. Um in terms of uh, what I alluded to before, um, whether we give intermittent IV dosing or whether we give a bolus followed by a drip, there really is no difference between outcomes um between both of those strategies. So I would say either is reasonable. Um, I would say giving intermittent IV dosing is probably more cost effective um, rather than doing bolus infusion. So dosing with 80 milligrams IV and then um, dosing 40 milligrams IV, you know, in 12 hours, uh, I think is, is very, is reasonable, um, In terms of how to dose the PPI after endoscopy, um, it would depend on whether an endoscopic intervention is performed or not. Um, So for example, if uh, the endoscopist goes in and they find an ulcer that's actively bleeding, or maybe there's a non-bleeding vessel, um, the ulcer would be treated uh, using some type of therapies such as injecting epinephrine along with using hemoclips or cautery. Uh, So in these patients, we typically recommend keeping them on IVBID for an additional 72 hours before transitioning to PO. Um, However, if the patient had a clean-based ulcer that wasn't um, showing any signs of active bleeding or had a visible vessel,
2: I think it'd be reasonable just to start the patient on an oral PPI twice a day. And that's without the 72 hours of IV following. Is that to clarify?
3: Yes, that is correct. So in somebody who has a clean-based ulcer that didn't require any intervention, you can transition straight to PPI.
1: Okay. And you kind of alluded to it, like, obviously, once they come in, starting this IV PPI, but also pretty quickly getting them into endoscopy as well.
3: That's correct. So in terms of timing of endoscopy, you know, so in um, the studies have shown that, you know, in some uh, in patients um, who have uh, a peptic ulcer um, that's bleeding or has bled, um, trying to do an upper endoscopy within 24 hours um, is probably the best for the patient. Um, so in this patient, trying to get them into an endoscopy suite within 24 hours, I think would be warranted. Um, and somebody who is showing signs of, you he- hemodynamics instability, um, or if they're continuing to pass melana, I may want to do their upper endoscopy much sooner, of course, once they've been adequately resuscitated. So it depends on the overall clinical picture, and hemodynamics certainly play a huge role in terms of making that determination in terms of the timing of the upper endoscopy. Um, I would also add, I know we kind of talked a little bit um, before about um cirrhotics and uh, patients with cirrhosis. So those patients um, are at risk for esophageal varices and gastric varices, um, which can bleed. And those unfortunately carry a fairly high mortality rate if untreated, up to 20%. Um, so in those patients, that's another subset that I'd probably would want to consider being more aggressive about doing upper endoscopy, at least within 12 hours after they've been adequately resuscitated. Um, and in terms of their treatment, um, you know, we typically we'll still give them a PPI because certainly patients with cirrhosis may also have peptic ulcer disease. Um, So, but in patients with cirrhosis, if I'm also concerned about potentially them having varices, we'll typically start them on octreotide as well, as well as prophylactic antibiotics.
1: And I guess that's a good segue. Um, So I think Moni and I, when we were reading, going through the guidelines, we were also surprised about the recommendation for erythromycin um, because again, like, we've never really used it or seen it really used. So could you maybe tell us if that's like true, people are using it everywhere or um, kind of what the recommendation would be?
3: Sure. Um, I certainly think erythromycin is probably going to be more useful than a guaiac dual test on the inpatient setting. Um, the benefit of erythromycin is that it's a pro-motility agent, so it binds to motilin receptors in the stomach and can help empty the stomach um, that may be full of clot or blood, de- uh, blood debris. Um, and so this can help improve visualization. Um, you know, unfortunately, oftentimes it ends up being an afterthought. Um, I may go in with with an upper endoscopy and somebody who may have a fairly significant upper GI bleed. And, you know, I see a bunch of clot and I, you know, I kind of, you know, tell myself, oh my gosh, I probably should have given this patient erythromycin or even metoclopramide just to kind of help those contents move forward. Because if you can't get a good visualization, unfortunately, you may have to do the procedure again
2: the following day once their stomach has been cleared. Mind blown. Seriously. I've literally never used erythromycin, so... I feel like we just need to start handing it out. No, I'm just kidding, but maybe not.
1: <laughs> but is that how you would do it? Like you would like patient comes in, you know they're going to get scoped the next day when you start the PPI, just go mm-hmm. ahead and give them like the erythromycin dose or how would you dose it and do it?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the best time to give erythromycin is um, just prior to the procedure, um, I would say somewhere between 30 to 60 minutes prior to the procedure. Um, So if I know if I'm I'm going to be doing an upper endoscopy, I know sort of the approximate time, um, I usually ask the nurses on the floor in the ICU um, to give an IV infusion erythromycin um, just about 30 minutes to one hour prior to the procedure.
2: I wonder if maybe if we check like the pack, you order something, we might see it from time to time.
1: Yeah. Now that you said that, it, that might be what happens.
2: Yeah. It may, it may not be something that we order. So cool. Okay. What's <laughs> is why what we're talking about it. Do you want
0: to learn the most important clinical skills in a fun and super effective way? And do you want to solve over 90% of your patient's problems without the help of a more senior colleague? And I'm not sure we can really guarantee that 90% thing, but let's just say a lot then you need to check out MedMastery. MedMastery is an award-winning online learning platform endorsed by the British Medical Association. They offer courses on things like EKGs from basics all the way up to advanced stuff like culture monitoring and stress testing, things like point-of-care ultrasound, mechanical ventilation, fluids and electrolytes, pulmonary function testing, echocardiography, and much, much more. MedMastery's courses are taught by amazing educators, and I'm talking about people like Joel Topf, AKA Kidney Boy, who will teach you their battle-tested tips and tricks in these courses. I personally just went through a MedMastery course on how to use Anki decks because I find them bewildering and don't understand them fully, but all of my students are using them, so I thought I owed it to myself to learn a little bit more about them, and the MedMastery course on them was spectacular. All their courses are top-notch, and if you work in internal medicine, family medicine, or emergency medicine, you need to check them out. All of MedMastery's courses are peer-reviewed and CME-accredited. Many residency programs around the world are using MedMastery to train their clinicians. If you're an educator and need a group subscription for your team, the friendly folks at MedMastery will be happy to assist you. If all of this sounds good to you, and it should, then go to www.medmastery.com. Again, that website is www.medmastery.com.
4: Now a word from our sponsor, Indeed. They are the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. As you know, we're fans of Indeed at the curbsiders because we recently used their services and had great results. It was easy to post our job on Indeed's platform. It was easy to navigate through the resumes we received, and we received a ton of high quality candidates, and we could do all the interviewing, all the sorting of applications right there. There on their platform. Indeed has a great service. So don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with all the right skills because you can do it all with Indeed. Indeed knows that when you're doing everything for your company, you can't afford to overspend on hiring. Visit indeed.com internalmedicine internal medicine to start hiring now. Just go to indeed.com internalmedicine internal medicine, indeed.com internalmedicine internal medicine terms and conditions apply cost per application pricing not available for everyone need to hire
2: you need indeed so we're going to move mr lopez's case along a little bit overnight he calls his nurse to bedside after he stands up to go to the bathroom and feels lightheaded can't get to the bathroom on his own as a result his nurse checks his vitals and he's found to be hypotensive and tachycardic On further questioning, Mr. Lopez has been having two to three black tarry stools for an hour for the past three hours. And a stat CBC reveals that his hemoglobin is now eight. Recall that it was 12 when he first got here. So this is the instability I think you're referring to. Mm -hmm. And I think you actually kind of already alluded to this, but it really does change the urgency of the procedure. Is that correct? When you have something like this happen?
3: You're you're exactly right. Certainly, this is really concerning. Um, You know, the patient has now become hypotensive, um, indicating that he's lost quite a bit of blood, you know, probably at least 40% if this is a a supine blood pressure. Um, So, the patient needs to be in the ICU if he's not already there. Um, You know, I would say that this hemoglobin of 8 is likely an underestimation of what actually his hemoglobin is like uh, right at that moment Um, you know the first things first though however so this patient is uh, hemodynamically unstable so they're hypotensive and tachycardic so we certainly want to resuscitate the patient give them fluids I'd probably go ahead and give him at least a unit of blood um, as well Um, and once he's been um, stabilized and his blood pressures and heart rate are looking better um, I'm going to mobilize endoscopy Unit. I'm going to give him some erythromycin probably as well, um, and do the upper endoscopy as soon as possible. Um, you know, while I'm doing the upper endoscopy, just given the degree of blood loss, I'm also probably going to have an extra unit of blood hanging. Um, you know, I think you know in this patient, um, and we'll talk about you know transfusion thresholds um, a little bit later. Um, you know the the. You know the goal of trying to transfuse only if their hemoglobin is less than seven. I I don't think would really necessarily apply to this patient who's massively bleeding. So even though his hemoglobin is eight, again it's important to note that this is likely an underestimation and he probably needs uh, blood transfusions.
1: And so we can go ahead and I guess talk a little bit about the transfusion. So let's say. It's the instability that in his case is like dictating his transfusions now. If let's say, though, um, he had come in and his hemoglobin happened to be eight, but he wasn't unstable, then kind of what transfusion guidelines are you using at that point? Yeah,
3: um, you know. In terms of how we go about managing uh, the need for blood transfusions in um, current times, um, you know, I think we, we tend to follow um, the recommendations as kind of proposed by the Villa Nueva study um, that was published in the New England Journal of medicine in 2013 Um, so in that particular study um, they compared um, a cohort of patients with upper GI bleeds um, who they randomized to either receiving um, a restrictive based transfusion protocol um, versus more of a liberal based transfusion protocol so in the restrictive um, transfusion group patients were getting transfused only if their hemoglobin was less than seven uh, versus the uh, more liberal transfusion uh, group, they were getting transfused um, if their hemoglobin uh, was less than nine. And uh, what the researchers found was that the outcomes in patients who uh, followed more of the restrictive strat- strategy actually had better outcomes than those who um, were in more of the liberal strategy. So, um, you know, so if the patient um, was hemody- hemodynamically stable um, and had stopped bleeding, I think it's reasonable to uh, follow that restrictive strategy. Um, An important thing to note in particular, with that study, was that it didn't include patients that had massive blood loss, um, such as the patient who um, became hemodynamically unstable, um, and it also didn't include patients who had had some type of um, cardiovascular v- event within ninety days of entry um, into the study. Um, so, somebody who had underlying coronary disease um, that may have been active, or um, you know, somebody who had had a stroke. Um, so, those patients were excluded. So. Then we kind of think about, well, you know, if the patient had some type of underlying heart disease or um, um, cardiovascular disease or heart failure. And those patients, we may think about also being a little bit more liberal in terms of uh, transfusing them. So in somebody who has severe underlying coronary disease, I'll probably transfuse them um, to at least a hemoglobin of eight to nine.
2: Is that only in like active coronary disease, or is that in people that just have severe underlying disease? I guess that's what I've always kind of been confused about.
3: Yeah, um, you know, I think that's a great question. Um, you know, I I kind of find that um, you know it probably would pertain more to based on that particular study, maybe more to um, patients who had active coronary disease. But I think in um, practice, we Probably liberalize it to anybody that has significant coronary disease. Can I ask one other question?
1: Yeah. I think the other thing that um, comes up a lot is H. pylori. And I feel like more recently, what I've seen is like practice habit. And I don't know if this is what should be done, is because they're getting scoped anyway, like biopsies are often taken, and then that's how the H. pylori is getting tested at that point. Um, but is there any role for us to really be doing like? pylori stool test or breath test or anything like that.
3: Yeah, that's a great point. You know, certainly any who has, um, peptic ulcer disease, um, will typically do gastric biopsies, um, you know, while we're doing the upper endoscopy to check for H. pylori. One important thing to note, however, is that sometimes the H. pylori testing can be falsely negative, um, in the setting of a GI bleed. Um, so if I do the upper endoscopy and I find a peptic ulcer, either a gastric ulcer, a duodenal ulcer, um, and I do biopsies and the, um, the gastric biopsies don't show any H. pylori. I wouldn't say that's uh, necessarily um, 100% conclusive that the patient doesn't have H. pylori. Um, and I would strongly consider having the patient come back for follow-up as an outpatient and do testing again using either uh, urea breath tests or uh, uh, stool antigen for H. pylori um, just to make sure that, you know, the the gastric biopsy test, that didn't show H. pylori wasn't a false negative. Um, In terms of doing a stool H. pylori antigen um, in the hospital, again, the same um, issue holds true. So if somebody is actively bleeding, the stool H. pylori antigen can be falsely negative. In addition, PPIs can also render the test falsely negative as well. So when we do H. pylori testing, at least on the outpatient setting, we typically have them hold their PPI for at least two weeks. Before we do the
2: test,
1: okay. I will stop ordering those inpatient. <laughs>
2: yeah, man.
3: Yes, and hopefully you're not ordering an antibody test either. Serum H. pylori antibody test. We should not be using
2: that. I feel like we're pushing all your buttons right now, Tundee. <laughs> you mentioned the Guaiac test. <laughs> we're here to
3: poke. Mentioning <laughs> it. Great. And I'm here to
2: teach and correct. (laughs) We very much appreciate it. (laughs) You're welcome. So Mr. Lopez, as we kind of talked about earlier, likely has peptic ulcer disease. Uh, We talked a lot about the other potential differentials, um, including H. pylori, and then, of course, his NSAID use, and then we talked about liver disease. Uh, I think the next piece, kind of coming back to transitions, would be sort of the post-procedure phase. So we already talked a little bit about, you know, making sure that if they have a clean bowel ulcer, they can go straight to orals, if not, 72 hours of IV. So that part makes sense. I think the question that we always have, and this is just so I can sort of provide anticipatory guidance to my patients, is Do they should they be expecting repeat scopes? And then based on what we find, how long will they be on the PPI?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, great question. So. Um, So in terms of repeating the upper endoscopy, um, in somebody who has um, a gastric ulcer, um, you know, the concern is is that whether the ulcer is necessarily a peptic ulcer, it could potentially be a malignant ulcer. Um, so typically, in my practice, um, if I were to find a gastric ulcer um, on an upper endoscopy done for an upper GI bleed, I typically will do biopsies um, of the ulcer to check for any type of malignancy. Um, you know, with that being said, if there's anything um, on their history um, that I'm still potentially concerned that, um, Um, even if the biopsies were negative, um, that maybe the biopsies were falsely negative and to consider repeating it. So, for example, if they had a family history of gastric cancer or if they were elderly or if they were immigrants from countries where gastric cancer is highly prevalent, like Japan or Korea, I may um, consider doing a repeat EGD um, just to make sure that that gastric ulcer is healed and that there was no malignancy. In somebody who has a duodenal ulcer, it's Unlikely um, for that ulcer to be malignant. So, um, in those patients, I typically am not recommending a repeat upper endoscopy unless they're having continued symptoms or uh, continued signs of anemia or bleeding that I'm worried that maybe the ulcer didn't heal with therapy. And in terms of your other question, Moni, about uh, PPI use, so, um, you know, we typically recommend, um, you know, for gastric ulcers to keep them on a PPI for at least 8 to 12 weeks uh, and for duodenal ulcer for at least 4 to 8 weeks. Um, so the question comes up, is that something that they need um indefinitely, Um, and so, um, you know, then we have to kind of determine, well, what is their potential risk for developing an ulcer again in the future? So if they have to be on aspirin or if they say they can't get off of NSAIDs, then I'm probably going to recommend that they continue to take their PPI long-term, um, but if they're able to stop their NSAIDs or if they don't need aspirin um, and they don't really have, you know, potentially any other uh, risk factors for peptic ulcer bleeding, being on anticoagulation um, or other reasons, then, um, you know, typically they probably don't need to continue the PPI. Um, now, if I don't have a clear-cut reason why they developed a peptic ulcer, meaning they um, weren't taking NSAIDs or aspirin, or they didn't have H. pylori, and it's some, sort of this idiopathic ulcer. In those patients, I'll also um, typically recommend continuum PPI just
2: to prevent the ulcer from coming back.
1: Okay, that's helpful. Do you have anything else, Moni?
2: No, I think we probably need to summarize what we just did for the uppers. So to summarize upper GI bleeds, the first step is making sure you have a good history and physical uh, to help you kind of determine the etiology of the bleed. And then moving from there, I think the most important thing is determining their hemodynamic instability. I think we established that the actual number of the hemoglobin probably isn't as important as their overall stability and determining when they get scoped and what management they get. And then we talked a little bit about the PPI IV drip versus bolus really doesn't, intermittent bolusing doesn't seem to matter as much, but it does need to be IV. And then depending on what you find, they may need to be on it for 72 hours following the procedure. And then as far as tra- into transitions of care, um, making sure that based on the etiology, the duration of PPI is kind of determined that way. Anything else to the summary, Meredith?
1: I think Tom V will kill us if we don't mention we should not be getting guaiac tests.
2: Please And yes to erythromycin. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Meredith, I think we're ready for case two.
1: All right. Case two, we got uh, Miss Morosi at Cashlack. She's a 61-year-old uh, female with a history of diabetes, hypertension, factor five Leiden, who's on rivaroxaban for prior clots. And she presents with hematochesia over the past three days. Um, her home meds also include aspirin, amlodipine, and metformin. Notably, her she's like not complaining of any abdominal pain with her bowel movements and no abdominal pain at all. She's never had this before, and in the ER, she's hemodynamically stable. Her exam's relatively unremarkable. The ER had already done, I guess, a rectal, she um, also just had the hematochesia, and her labs are notable for a hemoglobin of 8.1, and her baseline is 12. So kind of just like we did on the last case, um, is there anything else that you'd want to know kind of upfront, for Ms. Morosi's case? Yeah. Um, so I would say probably the
3: most likely etiology um, for this patient uh, presenting with painless lower GI bleeding. Uh, in the setting of anticoagulation is probably going to be a diverticular bleed. So I'd want to know when their last bowel movement was um, because that could help to signify if the bleeding has stopped or if the patient is continuing to bleed because that may affect management. I would also want to know what their bowel movements were like uh, prior to this bleed. Um, Had they noticed a change in their bowel habits? Uh, Were they having diarrhea? Um, Because that could potentially signify maybe undiagnosed inflammatory bowel disease which uh, probably less common in somebody who's elderly, but certainly um, elderly patients can suddenly present with IBD in their later years. Or, you know, in terms of change in bowel habits, were they becoming more constipated? Um, so I'd be thinking about um, an etiology such as solitary rectal ultra- ulcer syndrome, um, which can uh, lead to rectal bleeding. Um, if they're having other symptoms, changes in their bowel habits. I'd be worried about colon cancer, Um, so I'd also be asking about weight loss. Um, I'd be asking about any um, additional over-the-counter medications besides aspirin, um, especially NSAIDs, because that can also be a risk factor for a lower GI bleed as well. Given that the patient is 61, um, I hope that she's had at least one, if not two, colonoscopies for screening purposes, so I'd be curious to know what those showed. Um, you know, does she have diverticulosis that was noted? Um, if the patient may have had a colonoscopy just a few days prior to presentation, I'd want to know if, they, um, if she'd had a large polyp that had to be removed. Um, in that particular scenario, I'd be worried about a potential post-polypectomy bleed, which can also present with rectal bleeding. I'd want to also ask about travel history or risk factors for infectious
2: etiologies as well to complete the history.
1: That was a solid differential, so (laughs) I don't have anything to add.
2: (laughs) No, I definitely. So, you know, I think we've established this as a lower GI bleed, and she likely needs an endoscopic evaluation. So, a couple things I think the easy question is how do you determine who gets uh, a scope period but I think the question that hospitalists always kind of have lurking in the back of their mind is like how do they know if it's gonna be just a colon or just an EGD or it's gonna be both on the day of um, so I guess that's kind of where I'd like to start like we know we need to scope how do you kind of what helps you decide mm-hmm. the combination or not combination sure
3: yeah, so, um, so in this particular patient who's presenting with Hematemesis, um, but appears to be hemodynamically stable. Um, you know, I think what you're alluding to is, um, you know, whether we would consider doing an upper endoscopy to evaluate um, whether the patient could potentially be having bleeding from the upper GI tract. Um, which, um, with lower GI bleeding or hematemesis, about ten to fifteen percent of patients may actually have a um, upper GI bleed. And certainly, she has risk factors, um, being on aspirin, on anticoagulation. Typically, these patients are quite hemodynamically unstable, um, so I'd have a low suspicion that this patient has a uh, upper GI tract bleed, so I probably wouldn't be running or recommending doing an urgent upper endoscopy. Um, this patient certainly needs a colonoscopy, um, so I'd certainly go ahead and start um, talking to the patient about getting prepped and starting the cleanse uh, so that we could uh, do a colonoscopy uh, within the next 24 hours.
1: And when you hear like this type of story that seems very classic, at least for a lower GI bleed, um, is it fair for, I guess, the hospitalist to just go ahead, order the prep because it seems like we're going to head down a colonoscopy route? Or would you wait till GI actually were to see the patient and determine what they need and when that might happen?
3: Yeah, no, I think that's a great question with uh, lower GI bleeds, um, you know, typically we tend to see them in uh, older patients who, um, you know, could potentially have additional comorbidities, which may play a role in terms of how we go about managing the patient. Um, We certainly want to make sure that the patient could tolerate doing a colonoscopy, um, being uh, put under anesthesia, and having the procedure done, you know, so I certainly would wait to talk to the gastroenterologist before I start um, preparing the patient, but certainly, I think it'd be reasonable to tell the patient that there's a strong possibility they may have to have a colonoscopy. The other caveat to, you know, consider is, you know, this patient certainly had never had a lower GI bleed before, but, you know, in many patients with diverticular bleed, they've had um, issues with diverticular bleed in the past as well. So doing another colonoscopy is unlikely to be beneficial. So in somebody like that who we know has had a previous diverticular bleed and is coming back in with the bleed again, I'd probably move forward with doing some type of imaging test to help localize the bleed. um, maybe a CTA potentially, uh, rather than going straight towards a colonoscopy.
1: Can we talk a little bit about CTAs and tagged red cell scans and when they're useful and kind of at what point they may be useful or actually not so useful for us to be getting?
3: Yeah, sure. Sure. So I would say in terms of when it's not useful, it's probably not going to be useful if the patient is not actively bleeding. Um, So the patient has to be actively bleeding in order for um, the test to be positive. In terms of when, um, you know, when we'd want to consider doing that over a colonoscopy, um, it's probably going to be in the patient that presents um, with their first episode of lower GI bleeding who's hemodynamically unstable, um, and we don't really have a long time to um, have the patient do a Cleanse or colon prep. um, You know, maybe potentially the patient is hemodynamically unstable and it's hard to uh, resuscitate the patient adequately to be able to tolerate a colonoscopy. Um, So, in those patients, I'd probably be thinking about doing some type of imaging test like a CTA um, or a tagged RBC scan, um, or maybe even going ahead and involving my interventional radiologist and sending them straight to angiography. Um, You know, the benefit of uh, going directly to IR with angiography is that not only can the interventional radiologist diagnose the bleed and find where the bleed is, but they could also stop it as well. However, there are concerning risks associated with doing uh, angiography, specifically ischemia. So uh, I want, I'd want to be very mindful and very careful
2: and selective um, in those patients that I would recommend that strategy. Yeah, I read that it was like uh, up to 4% of people can get like ne- significant necrosis, so that seems like something we probably shouldn't just kind of willy nilly throw out there.
3: Right, right. Mm-hmm. And then the other issue too, as well as contrast um, too, as well, um, you know, potentially giving them um, a large load of contrast that could also um, uh, hurt the kidneys too, as well, and cause a AK- AKI. So we'd also want to be mindful of that, especially if they have underlying renal insufficiency.
1: And is there any role that like a CTA is better than a tagged red cell or vice versa?
3: Yeah, I think there are um, you know, risks and benefits of both. Um, you know, I think CTA is great just because um, they're quick. Um, you can get the results fairly quick. Um, also, compared to a tagged RBC scan, um, a CTA can give you a better anatomic delineation of where exactly the bleeding is coming from um, versus a tagged RBC scan can kind of approximate where you're the lesion is or um, say that the patient is actively um, or is having active bleeding, but in terms of actually localizing where the bleeding is, it doesn't do as great of a job as a CTA necessarily. However, again, kind of going back to issues with uh, uh, renal insufficiency, um, you know, by doing a CTA, especially in somebody who has underlying uh, kidney problems, and then also they may have some degree of pre-renal azotemia from having a active upper GI bleed, uh, you know, I would be concerned about giving them a large volume of contrast. So maybe in certain patients, a tagged RBC scan may be more um, more beneficial and less risky uh, over a CTA. But in, in my practice, I think in most patients, we typically will try to use a CTA for the very reason that it's quick and then it does a much better job of localizing where exactly the lesion is compared to a tagged RBC scan. And
1: I think you already said this, but just to be clear, so then for the most part, unless they're really unstable, you just don't have a whole lot of time, you would still get either probably like a CTA or a tagged red cell scan before sending them to IR. Like if those tests came back, localizing an area, then you would send them to IR?
3: That's correct. Yeah. I think, um, you know, it's important to have the discussion, you know, with the interventional radiologist. So, um, you know, if if I feel that maybe the potentially the patient would benefit going straight to IR versus doing a CTA um, first prior to um, to doing that. I I would have that discussion first with the interventional radiologist, Um, and there's a strong possibility they may not necessarily agree uh, with my recommendation, and they may recommend doing a CTA prior to having the patient come down to the IR suite for an angiography. So it's important just to, you know, have, an open dialogue, um, consulting the specialist too as well um, before making the final decision as to what you think would be best for the patient.
2: Yeah. And I think just keeping in mind what your hospital, your particular branch of Cashlax resources are is also always important to keep in mind. True. Very true. So, you know, let's say that Ms. Morosi instead has found to have a diverticular bleed after having her procedures. It seemed in reading that unlike GI bleed like upper GI bleeds we don't tend to have a lot of like medical options for patients is that a fair statement
3: yeah we don't really have a a, I would say great medication um to necessarily stop uh, diverticular bleeds You know, sometimes with colonoscopy intervention, in rare cases, can we identify the particular diverticulum that may have bled, and we could potentially treat it mechanically by clipping the area, Um, but it's quite rare that we are able to find and treat the lesion. You know, from a medical perspective, however, I think particularly if you look at this case, um, I'd want to reevaluate and determine um, whether this patient needs their anticoagulation um, along with their aspirin Um, certainly this patient has factor V Leiden deficiency um, so they're at risk for thrombosis so they certainly need to continue with their anticoagulation but I would question if she really needs to be on aspirin Um, I didn't hear anything in her history that she has underlying coronary artery disease. Um, so it seems like this is being used primarily for primary prophylaxis rather than a secondary prophylaxis. So maybe we could potentially take the patient of aspirin, which could potentially decrease the risk of further diverticular bleed. So kind of
2: risk stratification. From a medical
3: perspective, I think that's one that
2: mm-hmm, risk stratification exactly. And then when is it that we should think about referring to surgery for some sort of surgical procedure, colectomy, I guess.
3: Yeah. Well, I think in any patient who um, is coming with a lower lower GI bleed that just doesn't appear to be stopping on its own. So most diverticular bleeds end up stopping on its own. um, But in some scenarios, they keep continuing to stop and start, stop and start bleeding when they're in the hospital. Um, So in those patients that are continuing to bleed or continue to require blood transfusions, um, and it's difficult to being able to localize the lesion, or maybe you localize the lesion and treated it, but the patient continues to bleed. I think it's 100% reasonable to get the surgeons involved for helping manage um, that patient. Um, It's important to note, though, that the surgeons are going to want to have some type of positive scan before they take the patient in the OR. Um, The last thing you would want is not to have a positive scan and and the patient goes into the OR and, you know, has their colon taken out, but inadvertently you realize afterwards that maybe the the bleeding was from the small bowel or in a different location. So the surgeons um, would ideally want to have um, a test that identified where exactly the bleeding was before they consider taking the patient to the operating room.
1: Okay. So I think that was like a good segue to also like, let's say Ms. Morosi, we didn't find the diverticular bleed and we wanted to get um, some better pictures too of small bowel to see if that's where she's bleeding from. Could you talk a little bit about kind of the role for capsule endoscopy, either inpatient, outpatient, and when kind of to consider either or?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. So um, typically, we would recommend doing a pill camera in a patient who's continuing to bleed despite having a negative uh, colonoscopy. Um, In addition, they probably should have had a negative uh, upper endoscopy or another procedure which we call a push enteroscopy, um, which basically is an upper endoscopy that allows us to look um, deeper into the upper small intestine. Um, So in scenarios where the patient is continuing to require blood transfusions, continuing to have hematokiesia, I think it's 100% reasonable to do an inpatient pill camera test. Um, and somebody who may have stopped bleeding and has not bled in 48 hours, I think it would be reasonable to consider doing an outpatient pill camera test just to make sure that there's no evidence of significant pathology in the small bowel. So things that we may potentially find in the small bowel include... AVMs, small bowel tumors, like neuroendocrine tumors, GISS, so those things can also uh, cause um, significant um, GI bleeding as well. So certainly something we'd want to make sure that the patient doesn't have um, in terms of managing them. Okay.
1: Now kind of thinking about transitioning Ms. Morosi back to her outpatient, let's say her bleeding stopped and worrying set her up for like outpatient capsule endoscopy. You already sort of talked about specifically for her what we would do with anticoagulation and her antiplatelet therapy. Are there any other maybe like guidance you would give in general to like considerations that as a hospitalist we should be thinking about for her um, or for anyone's like anticoagulation or antiplatelet therapy?
3: great question i think you know when we think about how we go about managing anticoagulation and antiplatelet therapy in the hospital setting, I think we have to restratify the patient. So it's not necessarily a, a one-size-fits-all type of picture. Um, so there are some patients maybe we're not able to completely, you know, hold their anticoagulation when they're actively bleeding. Maybe they have a saddle embolus or, um, you know, maybe they have a, they had a recent coronary event and we can't stop their antiplatelet therapy. Um, so we have to, you know, take into account those factors when we make a judgment call about whether we continue their anticoagulation or antiplatelet therapy uh, or whether we hold it. You know, I think in a patient like this, um, you know, I think it'd be reasonable to hold her anticoagulation, you know, you can transition her to um, to a heparin drip, um, and just because you have the ability to stop it if she starts bleeding, um, you know, if she doesn't continue to bleed, I think it's reasonable to um, resume our anticoagulation within four to seven days after the inciting event.
2: And just to make sure that we know this for our listeners, these are more like expert opinion type things than they are guidelines, correct? With the sort of resumption or not of the that sort of stuff. That's correct.
3: So that's sort of what, you know, we don't really have great guidelines in terms of how to go about Managing anticoagulation, um, you know, post lower GI bleed or even post upper GI tract bleed. Um, you know, there are different um, case series that have been performed to sort of look at, you know, risk stratifying or, you know, looking at outcomes when you have a patient who's been on anticoagulation, you stop it or resume it or don't resume it. And so um, I think there have been different studies that have been looked at. And, you know, some say that, you know, starting within four days or within than seven days is probably more beneficial than not Starting it at all because you can potentially increase the risk of a thrombotic event. And certainly, in a patient uh, like the one that we uh, discussed, a 61 year old patient who was in anticoagulation, I'd certainly worry about development of thrombosis. So, you know, if possible, if she's not had any further bleeding, and certainly in conjunction with the physician who's managing my anticoagulation, um, I would have a risk benefit discussion and, and make the judgment call or think about. You know, when would be a good time to resume their anticoagulation, but based on some literature that we have, and again, case series, you know, one would say within four to seven days uh, would be a reasonable time frame to resume anticoagulation.
1: Okay. So I think in general, it sounds like patient comes in, you're concerned about lower GI bleed. You're, if the patient is stable, then your goal would really be to try to get them to a colonoscopy, like prep them in house, get them to the colonoscopy relatively quickly. If the patient, though, is more unstable-looking, then that's when you would kind of go down the pathway of um, alternative imaging modalities, whether that be a CTA or a tagged red cell scan based on what your facility may have available resource-wise. And Only in, I guess, the cases really where you're not finding that lower GI bleed would you start going and considering options like um, capsule endoscopy at that point. Kind of based on what you find overall, it's going to be very patient dependent as to what you do for restarting any anticoagulation or antiplatelet therapy. Anything else, Mooney?
2: No, surgeons just want proof before they start cutting things. Which is fair. Completely fair.
1: I think that's a fair assessment. <laughs> all right, Tommy, do you want to maybe give us any like take home points from like all of the cases um, for our listeners that you really want them to know? Yeah, I mean, I think
3: any time you're you know, managing um, a patient who's actively bleeding, you know, just kind of remember your, you know, ABCs. number one. Make sure that the patient is adequately resuscitated. You know, going straight to a scope may potentially be more harmful in somebody who's you know, hemodynamically unstable. Um, certainly, you know, risk stratify the patient. Um, you know, think about uh, patients who may be at risk for worse outcomes, um, patients who may need more urgent endoscopy. You know, certainly they're Patients that may be able to wait 24 hours to get their procedure, but there certainly there patients that may need to have more urgent procedures. You know, this is you know in terms of managing these patients, it often requires a multidisciplinary effort too, as well. So in conjunction with the hospitalist team, the GI team, uh, potentially radiologists, interventional radiologists, and surgeons. You know, it's important to involve all appropriate consult teams when making the uh, right decision
1: for your patient as well. All right, this has been another episode of the Curbsiders bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our Curbsiders Digest recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine.
2: And we're committed to high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or email us at Curbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at vcuhealth at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. A special thanks to our guest, Tundi Deer, and my ever-effervescent co-host, Meredith, and our whole team. The Curbsiders is produced and edited by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And until next time, I've been Moni Got Money Ameen.
1: And I've been Meredith Elizabeth Trubit. Thank you and good night.